welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Onfit podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Simon Chantry from BIT and Jim Shin, also from BIT. Simon, do you want to introduce yourselves and, and your company a little bit? Sure. Thanks, Lewis. Pleasure to be with you today. Uh, my name is Simon Chantry. I am co-founder and chief information officer at BIT. Um, a bit on my background, uh, I've been in digital currencies for about 10 years now. Co-founded BID in 2014, sort of the first uh, fully dedicated uh, company to digitizing national currencies. Um, prior to that, my experiences in uh, engineering, nuclear commissioning engineering. Um, my digital currency journey has taken me, uh, you know, quite a few different places. Uh, it's, it's been wonderful to be part of this sort of growing, innovative industry. Um, and we'll get more into some of BIT's work uh, in the podcast uh, really excited to have uh, recently brought on the founding team from Critio's CBDC division, uh, and that includes Eric Bethel and Jim Shin. And we have Jim here with us today, so I'll pass it to Jim for an introduction. Uh, thanks, Simon. Yeah, my name is Jim Shin, S-H-I-N-N. Uh, and I, uh, unlike, unlike Simon, who is really a CBDC industry pioneer, I've only been in this um, for about two years, most of that at Critio where we had, uh, we're building a CBDC offering. But um, as you can tell from my white hair, I've been around tech for a while, having spent um, almost 30 years uh, principally in Silicon Valley uh, and focused on a couple of uh, high throughput uh, data platforms, of which I believe CBDCs uh, are going to be one of the more recent and interesting examples. On a, on a small personal note, I did uh, actually go back and get a middle-aged PhD in economics uh, at Princeton, where I was uh, taught by Ben Bernanke. So uh, I am particularly intrigued about the ways that CBDCs and the data platform can be used to change and improve on the conduct of monetary policy by central banks, which I think is something we're going to touch on in today's discussion. Yes, I'm sure we will. Thank you. Yeah. So the Critio, um, bringing, bringing the team over from there, uh, nice, interesting development for you guys a bit. They, they were doing some quite interesting things at, at Critio and, uh, I'm sure you've got, uh, you've got plans for them a bit, Simon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, the, the team there made, uh, quite a splash in the industry, mm. um, in that two years that they were looking at, uh, at CBDCs and developing solutions and building relationships. And so we're quite eager, eager to pick it up, eager to pick it up on, on both sort of sales and business development side, as well as on uh, some of the data modeling uh, and, and programmability um, features that, uh, that the Critio team have been working on. Um, we have uh, one specific deployment right now where we're pushing ahead with programmability. And so, you know, uh, Jim's input is, is very welcome there. And, and so, yeah, we, we think it just, it makes our team a lot stronger and, and, uh, and ready to embrace, you know, the, the big surge in activity that we see coming, um, in CBDCs and, and stable coins as well. Yeah, a really fascinating thing. It's a, it's a very dynamic area at the moment and uh, a lot of, uh, just, you know, going to the meetings and, uh, hearing people talk about this over the past few months, things that were really new and innovative are already being taken for granted. And, you know, people are really having to move very quickly to, to stay on top of this, uh, this area. Can you tell me a little bit about, um, what's new with BIT? What, what, what's coming from you guys? What's been going on lately? Yeah, happy to. 
<clears throat> so Bit currently has five unique digital currency deployments across 12 countries. Uh, so I can run through them uh, just quickly. Uh, our first, of course, is our, our beloved digital Barbados dollar deployment in, uh, in Barbados under the brand M-Money. That's effectively a synthetic CBDC or a full reserve stable coin. Uh, and we actually operate that in market. That was our, our sort of test uh, pilot case, our, uh, our initial example of what a monetary ecosystem could look like, really treating a monetary uh, system like a network, you know, welcoming integrations wherever they come. Um, next, we have Dcash with the Eastern Caribbean uh, Central Bank. That recently got rolled out to all eight countries. So we're live in, in all eight countries. It still is technically under pilot, and we're looking to shift that to more of a production deployment. One of the milestones that's sort of common amongst all of our deployments is shifting to a point where the APIs are available to a broad set of intermediaries. That's really where you're going to start to see a lot of activity happen, at least I suspect that to be the case. Uh, for CBDCs is when you have many, many intermediaries being able to integrate. So really looking forward to uh, to hitting that milestone. We have the digital Belize dollar deployment uh, with the National Bank of Belize. Uh, we also have uh, the biggest CBDC deployment in the world outside of China, and that's with the Central Bank of Nigeria. Uh, and then we're also working on a really exciting project with Tascom Bank, which is an old Ukrainian commercial bank uh, for the Ehrvnia. And this is effectively a continuation of the National Bank of Ukraine's CBDC efforts, but allowing a private commercial bank to sort of run with a full reserve stablecoin deployment, test out some of the functionality, test out the features in close collaboration uh, with um, both the, the National Bank and a, a government-affiliated entity called DIA. Uh, so we're going to be testing some really interesting features there along programmability, uh, as well as we suspect to be able to use it for some of the relief funding efforts that are going on in the country. Mm. Uh, so that's a quick overview of all the deployments that we currently have. And then, of course, really excited to to be bringing on uh, uh, the team from Critio as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. It's such it's such an interesting variety of approaches with CBDC. I think uh you know, learning about uh, that over the past few years just been amazing to to see the the different strategic priorities that different central banks have and and the different uh, roadmaps that they're taking to to get there. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, we've seen some progress in the U.S. lately, which the U.S. has kind of been lagging. I think generally it's fair to say that you know a lot of people are are ahead of them there, but Biden issued an executive order to to kind of speed things up a bit, and they've got Project Hamilton, which uh, we did a we had a meeting with Jim Cunha talking about that. It's been really interesting uh, to watch that, and there's the U.S. eCash Act as well. So there's there's sort of several different strands that they're pursuing, and I wanted to get your thoughts on on how those are developing. Well, I would maybe as a segue to that, uh, just observe that, uh, yeah, the U, the U.S., there's a flurry of activity here. The EO from the Bud administration, I think, has uh, acknowledged, frankly, the fact that the U.S. and, for that matter, a number of the other uh, developed market central banks are uh, quite a bit behind uh, in terms of a CBDC offering. The, this is one of the reasons why we at, from the Critio team were attracted to work with BIT because the, as we all know, the emerging markets have, for a couple of interesting reasons, uh, moved much more quickly than the developed market central banks, uh, to pilot, uh, CBDCs and sort of Nigeria is the biggest, the biggest one of all. The, 
there's a couple of reasons for that. And I, I, I before I turn over to uh, to Simon for talking about uh, the uh, efforts in Washington, the as we know the the emerging market economies or central banks um, are the, they're the ones that pay the highest price for remittances. And so they've got the biggest uh, upside in reducing payments costs, particularly those which rely upon remittance income for a large part of their uh, their financial balance. Uh, they've also, in many respects, and this touches on the question of the conduct of monetary policy, uh, quite a few of the emerging market central banks are uh, suffering from cryptoization. It, it's a, a variation on the old problem they used to have of dollarization, but to the degree that the that the assets or the money supply circulating in an emerging market uh, economy are denominated in dollars or they're denominated in cryptocurrency, which is often the case in Latin America, basically the central bank has lost control over their monetary policy, meaning they've lost control over their over their economy. And so uh, we think that's the defensive approach to uh, cryptocurrencies and stable coins in particular that may account for the relatively fast moving central banks and emerging markets. In contrast to to central banks in uh, emer- in developed markets where there are similar gains to be had in the conduct of monetary policy and in reducing payments costs, but there are far more bodies at work who uh, profit from the current regime, including high payments cost credit card companies, and so naturally enough resist a move towards a digital dollar. Yeah, it's a, the the dollarization or, or cryptoization is something that we're hearing a lot about from from the central bank community. I think, uh, in particular, I think stable coins are. They see that as a, a vector for speeding up dollarization, just making it so so much easier to access. They do, they do, and the recent um, one might call it chaos or semi chaos in the crypto markets, with two trillion dollars in nominal value extinguished since the Terra USD meltdown, has added uh, a prudential regulatory fear to to central bankers everywhere that uh, that there could have been a lot of contagion coming out of that. But perhaps we, I'd like to touch on that later on. But first, I think, Simon, your views on the digital dollar. Yeah, absolutely. I, I look, you know, the Boston Fed was uh, was fairly progressive, uh, having started work on this a number of years ago. And I think it, it was really cool to see the, the papers come out early, earlier this year from uh, from the Federal Reserve and from MIT. Uh, with their digital currency initiative um, that is part of the engineering working group there. So we're really, you know, interested to see how the open CBDC TX uh, code base is evolving. Um, certainly the, some of the stats, the metrics that, uh, that they've been able to achieve, uh, at least in test environments so far are impressive. Um, and this could be the reason why we see, for example, the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England uh, doing dedicated projects with MIT's DCI. Um, it's, you know, we haven't seen it in production yet, so I'm really interested to to, to get an opportunity um, to integrate with OpenCBDC TX in production. So it's it's just it's cool to see an open source effort 
started in the U.S., you know, a very prestigious uh, institution and pushing forward uh, that initiative to, to sort of see, okay, what, what metrics can we realize truly uh, for a digital U.S. dollar and how's that going to, you know, ensure that we're getting the performance and security needs, uh, security that we require to, to sort of safely transact, uh, you know, the world's reserve currency. Um, it's, it's such a different uh, set of considerations for the U.S. versus other uh, central banks worldwide, just just because of how vast the U.S. dollar, how, how prominent the U.S. dollar is in international trade. Uh, and I think, you know, it, it, it also, it's, it's testament to, um, just how prevalent the U.S. dollar already is in Web3 with, with, uh, sort of, uh, I guess what the market cap of stable coins is probably over 200 billion, maybe between two and 300 billion right now. So, um, a large presence relative to the overall market cap of, uh, of crypto generally. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really cool to see these efforts coming along. You know, right now we have Treasury seeking comments on a CBDC. Uh, the Fed uh, sought comments earlier this year. And, uh, yeah, we're really excited to participate and, and to, uh, yeah. And, and like I mentioned, to integrate, uh, as mm-hmm. soon as we can with open CBDC TX. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really interesting concept. You, you know, you mentioned the market cap is, is pretty substantial, but, I think the vast majority of the activity of that is just trading pairs with uh, with cryptocurrency at the moment. But I think, you know, the use cases are obviously massive beyond that. And it's going to be interesting to to kind of watch that that transition, uh, you know, given that it is it has such an important international footprint. I'd be interested. Do you have any thoughts on what that that process is going to look like? Uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's the, it's the world's reserve currency and it's going to be important to have global access. But. That I think is is not a simple thing to to achieve. Yeah, that is a that is a really interesting point, and we are at an interesting point in time. Uh, looking at it is true that the stable coins are what the BIS recent report referred to as they're largely self-referential mm-hmm. in the use of CB, of uh, stable coins in uh, uh, decentralized finance mm-hmm. uh, in in DeFi. And, uh, there was a recent report, which I'm sure many, most of the OMFIF folks are familiar with the, you know, the BIS annual report for, that came out in June. The first two chapters obviously were about inflation, but the last chapter three are written, I'm, I'm pretty sure by, uh, my former colleague at Princeton, Hyun Chin, uh, uh, fully endorsed, uh, CBDCs as a replacement for stablecoins and went through a litany of the structural uh, defects of stablecoins as a substitute for, for basically central bank money. So, and I think it's not unrelated to the, to the market meltdown that, that we just referred to, right? I mean, the, with, with, the, the two trillion in value for a total crypto market cap between November of last year and June is a sizable percentage of, of, uh, a number of world asset markets, right? Like 2% of the global equity cap or, you know, 2% of uh, total fixed income, global fixed income market cap and just within just six months. So I think it was fear of contagion. By stablecoin meltdown and a sense of uh, of a uh, near run thing 
that the Terra USD Luna meltdown didn't bring down any of the non-bank financial intermediaries, the NBFIs, which, as you know, all the central banks and prudential regulators have, are worrying about because they think that's where the risk has pooled outside of their, you know, prudential regulatory purview. So yeah. I think Shin and the BIS grabbed that, grabbed that moment and rephrase the opportunity to for CBDCs to fulfill that DeFi role in a particularly clever way. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to to watch that development. I, I mean, I guess central banks, uh, yeah, I, I, talking about it as a near-run thing, um, we're kind of fortunate that the crypto market is not more fully integrated with the, with the rest of the economy, uh, and that, that's kind of the limiting factor for the damage that the, the recent meltdown has done, but uh, we'll need to have something a little bit more robust in place uh, as crypto and stable coins or, or CBDCs become more important to, to daily economic life, I suppose. Um, I would take it, Lewis, in a slightly different uh, direction as well. Uh, very relevant points all around. But uh, what I would say is I think there's uh, sort of a trend towards, I don't know if consolidation is the right word, but, um, certainly towards uh, internet native transaction and settlement. So there being sort of transaction and settlement purely in an, in an internet uh, sort of, I guess, context. Um, we sort of see, you know, what's happened over the last uh, couple decades since the commercialization of the internet. First, you had internet native applications. So user experiences uh, were predominantly, you know, or, or at least the, the companies that did really well early on, like the PayPal's of the world and perhaps even the Venmo's or Stripes of the world, you had um, internet native ex- user experiences and the settlement was still done via legacy systems. Mm-hmm. And you can argue today that uh, stable coins still need to settle in the legacy system, but a lot of folks, uh, you know, don't necessarily need to settle. They, they consider holding the stable coin as being, uh, as being sort of the instrument that they're, that they're, uh, you know, that they're, that they're satisfied holding on their balance sheet yeah. or, or holding as an individual. Um, and, and I would say, you know, CBDCs take that one step further where you're, you are literally holding, uh, the asset in, in sort of true form. It doesn't exist on another legacy system that needs to be settled. The transaction is the settlement, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this, of course, is the argument for some of the native tokens on, uh, on, on the large cryptocurrency networks as well, like Bitcoin and Ethereum. It's like the, yeah. the, the transaction is the settlement. So it's sort of like a shifting towards, you know, purely internet based, uh, transaction and settlement. And I think that's the path that we're on. Yeah. Uh, I want to return to a point that we were touching on a little bit earlier, um, about the U.S. lagging behind and, you know, who else is, is accelerating. We talked a little bit about emerging markets, but another major economy that has advanced a long way in this is China. And I'd like to get your thoughts on China's digital currency project and implications that that has for, for its neighbors and I guess for the world. If, you know, does an e-renminbi challenge the dollar for global reserve currency status if it becomes the you know an instrument that's available in in a dominant settlement network and the dollar doesn't have something to compete with that for example yeah it is it is uh striking how uh out ahead of everybody the pboc uh and the their digital currency institute have been on on several levels um both in terms of the the sophistication 
of the platform, the size of the and scale of of the pilots, uh, enabled, I think, quite nicely by a couple of uh, features of the PRC that not every developed market or emerging market central bank has, which is number one, if if you basically control the entire banking sector, then um, you can sort of through the state, basically state-owned institutions, you can pace the adaptation by by the banks, and also uh, uh, by the fact that the uh, the PBOC and the state generally in Beijing has basically like stepped gorilla-like on uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay. Uh, anyone who's been observing the you know reading the, the Financial Times has an article at least once a week about how uh, the PRC government is coming down hard on the big digital players. And so uh, with Alipay and, and WeChat Pay having really pioneered the use of digital payments in China and brought the payments cost down to, I think it's an average of 20 bips in domestic consumption transactions, as opposed to, I think, the two or three percent by credit cards. Uh, it's a rather neat way for the the ECNY, the digital renminbi, to uh, have used them sort of as a launch pad. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It, it's it, I mean it's a it's a great example of you know the largest intermediaries coming onto a, a CBDC network. And as I mentioned before, we're really excited for to hit that state. Uh, you know, in, in our deployments. Now we don't have giants like uh, WeChat Pay and Alipay uh, where we're deployed, but uh, it's a similar concept where you have the, you know, the, the payment service providers <clears throat> that have already uh, gained a lot of users, a lot of volume, um, being able to now include CBDC payments as an option for their end users uh, and, and benefiting from the low cost that will be associated with those payment rails. So yeah, we're, we're super excited to get there. And yeah, look, it's, 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 uh, I sort of echo what Jim said. It's, it's been fascinating to see how quickly, uh, the Chinese have moved on, uh, on their CBDC. It's not necessarily a surprise. Um, and definitely I, I know that, you know, all of us are watching sort of keenly internationally to see what other countries start to pick it up and adopt it. Um, and you know, you know, with the exportation of uh, Chinese um, private enterprises and maybe private isn't the right word, but uh, different, uh, you know, companies fulfilling Chinese contracts abroad, um, their currencies often travel with them. Uh, and, and so, you know, this could likely be a, a catalyst for further exportation of the currency. Um, but, uh, you know, sort of time will tell. And, and I know that a lot of eyes are, are watching it. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see, I guess, the integration with the Belt and Road uh, and if it becomes a, an important part of, of that process. Um, Jim mentioned adoption there, and I think that's a really interesting area. You know, Simon, you've talked a, lot, a little bit about the, the projects you have on the ground. Can you talk what the can you talk about what the process to, to get something like that adopted is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I guess keeping in mind our most the eNaira went live sort of end of last year. Dcash went live sort of middle last year, still in pilot technically there. Um, so we haven't seen massive adoption of either of these networks just yet. And and then the other deployments that I mentioned were still sort of building out some of the base feature sets uh, before go live. Um, so so just a bit of a caveat there. Generally for adoption, 
you know, it, it ultimately depends on the culture, uh, the, the local culture and the trust associated with institutions, the trust with the financial system. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting challenge, I would say, for the central banks to, uh, determine sort of the adequate level of public education and advertising that's required, um, to sort of have a, uh, yeah, to, to encourage both, uh, you know, private enterprises and, individuals and the public sector to start to migrate payment streams. That's effectively what it comes down to. It's, um, are you going to choose to spend in CBDC or are you going to choose to use whatever traditional uh, rails are in place? Um, the idea behind opening up these networks to intermediaries, of course, is that in some cases you may not even know that you're spending CBDC. It may just be, you know, part of the, the sort of user experience. Um, I, I suspect that some payment service providers may migrate away from their current uh, sort of holding and settlement uh, structures and processes in favor of a CBDC if the cost structure is more beneficial if the, and if the, you know, if the user experience, if the integration is seamless and secure, right, which of course is, is what uh, these networks, this is what we're driving at for, for some tangible outcomes. So, um, I guess there's a balance there between, you know, how much should the central bank be speaking about it in market versus how much should be left to the intermediaries who are providing the, the payment services to the end users uh, in, in, in the market. Um, so there is a balance there. And uh, and quite frankly, I'm, I'm unsure. I, I sort of lean more towards the intermediaries um, being the ones that should be marketing payment services to to the end user. And, uh, and, and obviously the benefits should be reflected in, you know, things that the end user will will desire. Speed, security, lower cost, uh, all these things, you know, which uh, which we again <clears throat> see the see, we see the road for that, and we're certainly heading in that direction. Um, There's a wonderful example of that, uh, Simon, in, that you're aware of, in Brazil, right? So the PIX, <clears throat> the PIX payment retail payments network uh, was introduced just 12 months ago, and I was looking at some market share data, and in four quarters. Uh, the PICS market share in Brazil is now equal to that of credit cards because it's wow. 20 times cheaper yeah. and it's near instantaneous. So your point that, that markets work and that speed and low cost ultimately can drive adoption, I think, is really evidenced by the Brazilian example. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, you can talk about the, the culture, but ultimately, if you can provide a better service, uh, as long as there's adequate communication of that, then it should, uh, it should take off. Um, one of the interesting, I guess, unique or relatively unique selling points of, of CBDC is programmability. And I know that's something that you guys have, have worked very hard on. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, how that, that's deployed and what sort of demand you see uh, for for new features there? Sure. We, we uh, as Simon said, we have been um, interested in the potential for the programmable feature, the data model of the CBDCs to really um, transform the conduct of monetary policy uh, in several dimensions, and uh, it's not something that was usually at the top of the list of the multiple policy objectives that each central bank has when they towed up their priority for um, for CBDCs, but it's uh, becoming increasingly prominent as 
as we know, all the all the central banks are, are kind of under the gun now to deal with with a rather complicated monetary policy environment. Right. I mean, the, 75 percent of the central banks in the world now have uh, have instantaneous inflation over five percent. And they've got these sort of very archaic transmission belts for the conduct of monetary policy as they attempt to crank up the policy rate, whether it's the BOE or, you know, Banxico or the Brazilians themselves. And so the programmable feature of a CBDC could make their job a lot easier in two obvious ways. The first is to use the CBDC transaction set, the data set, suitably anonymized to conduct a near real-time index of price inflation rather than the way it's done now, which is surveys, which are backward looking, or financial market indicators, which don't actually reflect the uh, inflation perceptions of households and and, uh, businesses, right? And the second thing is to then, once you actually have an index of inflation that's timely and accurate, then use a interest rate coefficient in the CBDC to directly affect the behavior of households or businesses rather than going through the you know century old transmission belt uh, which in some cases you know re- recent studies showed that the, the, the it can take between 3 and 15 months for a policy rate change to ripple down to to the to the to, transactions in the real economy. So this is a extremely promising feature of CBDCs and one which we are building into the bit model. Yeah. I wonder if, uh, I mean, looking at the the behavior of the ECB over the past uh, five or six years and the desperate scrambles that they've had to try and generate some inflation via quantitative easing, huge asset price inflation, very little consumer price index uh, movement. And I'm wondering if, you know, the, the sort of feature that you're talking about could have kept rates, you know, in a sort of more reasonable bound, not not had the massive asset price inflation, but but generated the inflation that they were looking for a lot more quickly. Oh, you're, Lewis, you're entirely right. And it's not just the ECB. Sure. I mean, it, you know, in the, the last decade, we've had huge amount of liquidity pumped into, pumped into the financial economy. But Without any real idea of where it is, yeah. Whereas with the CBDC data set, you could know quite precisely, you know, where 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 is the liquidity? What's the, you, you'll know both the velocity and the supply of of money in a way that would make a you know monetarist professor smile at potential of actually doing your job as a central banker rather than uh, as you said um, being behind the eight ball. Yeah, I'm not sure that's a technical macroeconomic term being behind the eight ball. But, <laughs> uh, I think that's the way most serious central bankers feel right now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to change gears slightly and talk a little bit about security. Uh, I think that the cryptocurrency market, I mean, there's been some extremely public hacks in the past week or two, um, Nomad Bridge and, and, and so on. Uh, and I think it's been, I think, Generally speaking, the public trust in the security of DLT-based systems is shaken when when they hear about these hacks. And I, I don't necessarily think that's fair, but I wanted to get your thoughts on 
uh, what the the appropriate security architecture, which is a big priority uh, for for people when they think about a new CBDC. What, what does the security architecture need to look like? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and obviously top of mind for all of our our central bank and financial institution clients. Um, I should say, you know, there's a big difference between hacks that that happen on decentralized networks or, uh, you know, in some cases, allegedly decentralized networks. If I'm talking about Solana, um, th- there's a big difference because you the the operation of those networks uh, is is quite a different problem set from private permission networks, which are typically the way that CBDCs are going now. Um, there's been some consideration of central banks perhaps issuing uh, CBDCs on public, uh, you know, public permissionless networks. Um, for example, uh, Stellar, mm. um, they have they've been evolving a number of the core features um, to actually suit the the uh, uh, monetary authorities' um, sort of functional requirements as far as bound drawing sort of boundaries around a specific asset issued on top of a decentralized network but for the the you know the highly traffic network like the more traffic networks like ethereum you know it's uh it's it's quite a different problem set because you're talking about decentralized uh, consensus effectively and uh, without there being a, a true monetary authority or intermediary and and so it's it, it is a different problem set and you know a lot of the hacks that are happening are uh sort of the result of rushing to markets, specifically with bridges, right? The, you know, porting one asset to another network um, and and not properly auditing your smart contracts. This latest one on Solana is, is super interesting. And it, it, it again, I'm going to go back to the point I made before about when we move to open up APIs to intermediaries, the quality control around, uh, yeah, quality assurance, quality control around the apps that have the permission to integrate into the CBDC networks is, is going to be very extensive, comprehensive, uh, because it seems that's what's happened on, on this uh, Solana wallet hack is uh, sort of the, the improper capture and storage of your seed phrases. Now, you know, in CBDC deployments, it's still being debated if, uh, you know, if you want to have a fully self-custodied model, there's arguments for and against. We offer the ability to do both. Um, as you know, as we think, you know, we should offer those sorts of options. But um, there's these sort of practice. Some, I guess, my point is, some of the security concerns are relevant in a decentralized context and not relevant in a private permission network like for a CBDC. Um, that being said, you know, there's there's plenty of security concerns uh, and I guess security features that we've been constantly sort of incorporating into our digital currency management system uh, for the provision of CBDCs and stablecoins. Um, the use of public-private key cryptography is obviously uh, is sort of like a staple in the industry. But but again, I, I just yeah, I guess I wanted to draw the distinction between um, yeah. between the two there. I, it's going to get a little more complicated, I guess, as we move to truly distributed uh, states of these CBDC networks, where you have uh, multiple multiple validators, multiple orders, you know, multiple peers, basically different types of nodes that are run by. Uh, the financial institution players. So right now it's mainly just the central banks running nodes and that's all well and good. But the, the intent behind distributed ledger technology is to have uh, folks who are meant to interact functionally and financially in an ecosystem operate nodes that correspond to their institutional mandate. And I think once, once you get there or, or sorry, on the road to get there, you're going to encounter some more uh, challenging uh, security sort of problems, uh, but we're really excited to meet those uh, head on. And, and that's another reason why we work with the best in class transaction networks. So we offer a suite of applications, tool sets that can integrate with 
the underlying transaction networks like a Hyperledger, like a, a Corda, like, you know, open CBDC, like I mentioned before. Uh, and so we're, so we sort of picture our job as sort of staying close with them and working hand in hand to provide, you know, secure deployments for, for CBDCs and stable coins. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, a really interesting topic. Uh, I, I'm sure we all have a lot more to say on it, but uh, I think we'll have to leave it there. Um, I want to thank you both for, for joining me today. Yeah. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. Thanks, Lewis. Uh, pleasure to be here and thank you for having us. Absolutely. A real pleasure. Thanks. And uh, I hope we can uh, do this again soon. I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll have lots more to talk about. It's uh, a very dynamic and fast moving space, as we said. Uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, uh, and on demand on our website. Do go there and check out the rest of our content, reports, and events, and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.